We're back in the book of the covenant this morning. If you haven't been with us in the last several weeks, the book of the covenant is found in Exodus 20, towards the end of Exodus 20, and goes through Exodus 23. And this is God's absolute moral law given to the people at Mount Sinai that's applied to specific situations in the life of the people of Israel. Um, At this time in in Israel, in the history of the church, the people are living under, under what we would call a theocracy which isn't as scary as it sounds. We break that apart. There's the, the theo, the theos, God, and ocracy, rule, or governed. So not a democracy, people governed, but a theocracy, God governed. And so in a theocracy, God is the supreme ruler. He is the one who makes the rules, who establishes uh, the laws, including the civil laws, for the people and the punishment for breaking those laws. Now, God is still the supreme ruler. That has not changed in any way. But we no longer live in a theocracy. Under the new covenant in Jesus Christ, the true and always intended Israel of God is made up of Jews and Gentiles. People from the ends of the earth, like sitting in this room. Now the church is in every place, not just confined to a specific nation. And in all of those places, and all of those nations in which the church is found, they are given the authority by God to make uh, laws and force civil laws. You know, as a church, we're not the ones setting you know, the speed limit out here on Bearpaw. We're not the ones bearing the sword. We've had some dark spots in the history of the church where we've forgotten that, what that means. So the the moral principles of the law endure and should endure for the morality, the flourishing of all people everywhere, but how those principles are applied and enforced in all the places that the church is is going to look different. So I want us just to have that that background as I start reading from chapter 22 here. We have a few more case laws in verses 16 and 17. If this happens, then do this. But then we're going to move into some more general precepts, beginning at verse 18. It's going to sound a lot like the Ten Commandments. You shall, or you shall be, uh, in those precepts. So here we go, Exodus 22, beginning at verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword." And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate." 
You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is God's enduring word to His people. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do praise You for Your word to us. We are grateful that You would speak in a way that we can understand. We are grateful that Your word endures by Your outstretched hand. And Lord, we ask now that You would teach us from Your word, that You will remind us of the story in which we are a part, how we can pursue a holiness because You, O oh God, are holy. Lord, be glorified now in the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife sent me a text this last, earlier on in the week. I think it was Tuesday afternoon, and she was you know, hoping I was having a good day, and I responded by saying, uh, I'm slogging through sermon preparation. And, uh, you know, some, some weeks it just comes together. You know, the themes sort of jump out, the direction that the author's going just kind of jumps out, and um, but this week was a little different. Some weeks it's just a slog and a grind. Um, and uh, that, was, that was kind of the feeling this week. And my, my, my prayer of preparation throughout the week was, Lord, help me. Um, I want to say what it is you're saying, but I don't know how to say it. Um, but as, as I read through these laws and reread them and, and this passage, um, one of the questions that I was asking in preparation, why did the people of Israel need these words. What is it saying about the people? And what it's saying about the people is what it's most likely saying about us. And twice we hear the Lord saying through Moses, remember who you were in Egypt. It's almost like an inclusio, almost like bookends in this passage. Verse 21 and then in 23 verse 9. Why would the Lord start and end this way? Why does he keep reminding the people of this? And it starts to, you know, to make sense. If the people of Israel, they're going to be tempted to live out of an old narrative. They know what it's like to be in a position of, of weakness and vulnerability. They know what it's like to be mistreated as slaves in Egypt. I mean, that's what these generations have known. 
So why should they not respond and treat people the way that they're used to seeing people treated? And then, you know, the correlation for us comes into view. When we're enslaved to sin, we're going to treat people unkind. You know, we won't care for the property of others well. We don't seek the welfare of others, but rather try and exploit them to our own advantage. That's the narrative that we live out in our sin. We rebel against God, and our efforts to displace God it will often lead us to, to oppress, to use others for our own advantage. This is what the people in Egypt have experienced. They were used by Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their own power, their own gain. But things are different now. Now they have a new master. Now the Israelites are a new people with a new story. They've been delivered and, and now are bound to God in covenant. We might say that they have a special union with God. He delivers, He provides, He protects, and they obey Him in all of life. That's really the, the foundation of a covenant. Now they are to live out of this new narrative. There are things that are true of them now, weren't true before. They're going to respond differently than they would have before. So what would living out this new narrative look like? How should they respond? And God, God shows them through His law, right down in some pretty specific situations. So we're going to see how they were to honor God, be impartial in their treatment to others, show compassion as God's holy people. So they're, they're Honor God in all things, privately, publicly. These first several verses here show us that, again, what we do privately has a major impact on those around us. Major impact on the community. Because of God's care for His people and His desire for holiness, He provides all these laws for individuals. So individual holiness, you put all that together, it makes for a community of holiness. So this case law in verses 16 and 17, it sounds weird to our modern ears. A couple decides that they're going to enjoy the, the intimacy that God has designed for marriage without being married. And I say decides very intentionally because this is describing a consensual situation. This is not a, a rape scenario. There are other laws in place for that, much more severe consequences. Uh, but if the guy or gal, the focus is on the guy here because he's held responsible for the relationship, um, which by the way is nothing new in human history. Um, in the very beginning of God's good creation, men have been responsible, expected to take responsibility in pursuing, providing, protecting in their relationships with, um, with women. So the man is responsible, and if he convinces the gal that sex outside of marriage is a good idea or necessary, or you know, he whines, if you really love me, you'll do this, he's not protecting her. He's using her, and God will not allow this uh, to stand. And so a bride price would need to be paid whether they got married or not. The desires that they would marry, um, they've already acted as if they are, are married, and so this gift from the man to the family is required. But this action would also remove the father from that position of arranging a marriage. 
if he refuses to let you know, this kind of guy marry his daughter, then a gift was still required. The bride price still need uh, to be paid for her care. Now, now she's in a much more vulnerable place, at a, a much greater disadvantage for future marriage. So here is God's protection. Here is God's care for the woman, even as she agreed to this initially. If you're familiar with Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, you have an idea of how this dynamic plays out with the handsome soldier, Mr. Wickham, who runs off with Lydia Bennet and brings, brings disgrace um, to the family. You know, will any of the other daughters be able to marry because of this? And behind the scenes, Mr. Darcy pays off some of these debts, making it an agreeable arrangement for Mr. Wickham to marry. So the woman here is not treated as property. Highly valued, protected. And the whole bride system, when we think about this, it really does elevate marriage. It it focuses on the weightiness of marriage. This isn't something to treat lightly. This isn't something to just jump into. Um, and, And intimacy, that sex outside of marriage, is not something to be toyed around with or to pursue holiness in our relationships, with our sexuality, because there's a lasting impact on our families, among the larger family of God. And in verses 18 through 20, it moves into this language of precepts, uh, describing some of the crimes that would bring a, enough dishonor upon God that it would, it would demand death. There were, uh, these things could be done in public, private, because each of these practices is substituting something in the place of God, in the right worship of God. Whether it's occult practices, trying to manipulate the future or gain some power from the dead, displaces a faith in God and God's sovereignty, the truth of His providence that governs all things. Bestiality replaces the truth of God's created order denies His saving grace as we see in the surrounding nations of this time. I mean, the very fact you have to mention something like this in the law means it's, it's happening. There's an issue. Um, and there were fertility worship practices that this involved um, with the people around Israel. So to introduce any other God and then offer the sacrifices that would have been expected in worship to a false God, that would be to forfeit one's own life. I really like how Dr. Phil Riken summarized as to why these laws are so grievous to God. He says, Sorcery, bestiality, and idolatry are heinous because they're contrary to God's character. God is sovereign and good, so we must not use dark powers to control His world. He is holy and pure, so we must not violate the sanctity of His image in us by behaving like animals. He is the only God, so we must not worship anyone else. So keep in mind, in this, this move toward holiness, what these precepts intended, that we're not exercising the death penalty as a church. There, there's a sphere of authority that the church does not have at our, our, our time in history. Uh, but God does describe in the New Testament uh, the discipline that should be faithfully carried out in the life of the church. And we're thinking about sin, or living in unrepentant sin, 
The discipline of the church is God's grace to us. It's His love for us. Designed to protect those within the church. Bring us back into fellowship with our God. A few more verses here that show the the respect and honor that people are to give to God. Um, He is holy. His holiness must be respected. They were not to hold back those things that belong to God. I'm looking at verses 28 through 31 here. Cursing their appointed leaders within the covenant community was not be tolerated. Say, well, if they're outside the community, if they're outside the church, is that okay? No. No, this, this precept would include civil authority that God puts in place. We can look at places like Romans 13, the New Testament. We're accountable to God for our words. And they matter a whole lot in our movement towards holiness. We just think of the tremendous power that, that our words have to do good but also harm. We need to be careful and guard against just this unbridled speech in any type of media. Um, do some further study on that in Psalm 5 or Psalm 15, Proverbs 18, Proverbs 25, and then James 3, in the New Testament, the importance of guarding the tongue. The first fruits belong to God. Whether that was the first fruits of the field or the first of fruits of the womb. We read earlier in Exodus 13, the firstborn was to be devoted to God and could be redeemed by the family with an appropriate substitute animal. The Lord requires, is deserving of the first, of the best from His people. There's a good gauge. The church's movement toward holiness. I think it's a good gauge for each of us individually as well. You know, it's very tempting for us to sort of give God the leftovers or just hold back entirely. What we give to the Lord of what He's entrusted to us, we show our faith, we show our trust in God by giving Him the first fruits. Which I know can be very hard at times. But only draws us closer, deepens our faith. People could not eat uh, wilderness roadkill, verse 31 obvious health reasons uh, for this, but, but animals that are, are torn apart by wild beasts, they could still contain that blood, the life blood that belonged to the Lord. We're going to actually read some more about that um, next week. And we read Leviticus 7, Leviticus 17. People could not ignore the requirements for covenant purity. Emphasis on purity here in the law. So these, these precepts elevate the holiness of God, the honor of the people are to show the Lord. And there's some laws on fairness, showing impartial treatment to others regardless of their gender, regardless of their social status or their wealth. Uh, verses 1 through 3 and again 6 through 8. It says that the justice system, if it is going to be a true justice system, must be fair. If the judges are going to make you know, any sort of fair ruling, the witnesses need to be able to speak honestly, impartially, not swayed by the crowd, not bribed into uh, saying certain things. Which actually includes not being partial to the poor. Maybe you caught that. We're going to see God's concern for the poor and needy in just a second. But no matter how much, no matter how little money a person has, it shouldn't affect their position in court. Maybe you've seen the picture of justice personified as a woman. And 
in one hand, most images will have her holding a set of scales, and then later on she's, she's holding a sword in the other hand. So there's the power of reason, there's the power of, of the sword to administer justice. Um, and some of, I guess it's in the last few hundred years, um, images of this woman have also included a blindfold. Uh, many will interpret that as, well, Justice is blind, they can't really see what's going on or can't discern the truth. But the intention was that justice was blind to wealth and status and position, impartial in all of its judgment. Now there are all kinds of things that can corrupt the judicial process. I think bribery is probably one of the most subversive. You know, We had a, an example this last week, maybe you saw that in the news of um, you know, a discovery where, where, where many wealthy parents, celebrities among them, paying healthy sums of money to third parties so that their children could gain entrance into uh, elite colleges. Um, now those investigations are still ongoing, but administrators bribed to receive test scores that weren't actually taken by students. Coaches bribed to accept them as athletes when they weren't athletes. Not only is that unfair, but it's damaging to the larger community. It's damaging to society, hurting those who are actually qualified and wanting to be honest uh, with their abilities in the process. So it just shows us just how much we are tempted by power and money. Greed just, it just feeds the user in us, never satisfied. I think even those who may usually have a very good sense, be clear-sighted or blinded by the allure of pleasure and control that money promises. Paul says to Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. So these precepts are to guide not just the actions of the people, but their hearts as well. There's one more grouping of precepts here we need to focus on. So it really shows the character of God. God's heart is poured out for those who are weak. Those who are vulnerable, unprotected. We read in verses 21 through 27, terms like the sojourner, the alien, widow, orphan, the poor, they're all being used to describe those who would be easily mistreated, unprotected among the people. So unlike the way that they were treated in Egypt, they were to show kindness, compassion to those who are most vulnerable. Now the, the alien doesn't have a voice among the people. doesn't have the rights of the citizen. The, the widow, the orphan, do not have the expected protections or provisions of, of being in a family. The Lord hears their cries. Just as He heard the cries of the people in Egypt, He's moved with compassion. This is part of who He is. We'll read later in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's that compassion and faithfulness. We'll hear the same language in Deuteronomy, Nehemiah, the Psalms. The Lord is compassionate. And these precepts show that God is going to provide for His people when they live in obedience as they show compassion to those who may be in need. In their lending, they were not to 
to charge interest, especially to those who have little. I think today lending is considered so much more like a, a commercial venture or an investment. But, but here, it's for those who you know, probably couldn't make it any other way in which items are, are lended. So it's viewed more like charity than an opportunity to make money, which would be another way to move the hearts of the people toward generosity, toward mercy. And if there was collateral given to the lender to, to reassure some repayment, and that, if that collateral was essential, something like a cloak or food or shelter, then it must be returned at the end of the day or, or, or not taken in pledge at all by the lender. So you have to ask, well, what's the guarantee? If they're giving back this collateral, what's the guarantee on the loan? For those who had so little to begin with, we see God Himself is the guarantee. He is the husband to the widow, father to the fatherless. It's His character to protect and provide for them. 23, 4, and 5, there's compassion shown even to those who they didn't like or didn't get along with. Could be a, it could be a neighbor, maybe someone who was their adversary in court, just speaking about that. But if they see his, his animal in trouble, they're not to look away, or I just didn't see that. They're to help. Maybe that calls to mind a certain parable on the Jericho Road in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So do we have the compassion of our God? Do we share in this compassion? Think about those who may be alone. About those who may be more unprotected, vulnerable among us. Maybe those who don't have a father or mother at home, we look for ways to befriend them, encourage them. There's a neat story, I think it was a little over a week ago, a couple hours southwest of here in Norman, Arkansas, but a high school senior decided to save up his money for a couple of years to purchase an electric wheelchair for his friend, another senior at the high school. And I think it was just over a week ago where he presented this wheelchair uh, to his friend uh, secretly. Uh, in class. Um, and when asked about this, he just said, I, I just felt like I needed to do it and wanted to do it. Think, well, what a wonderful sacrificial way for, really would be a sacrificial way for this young man to show his compassion. Um, and we think, and think of the many refugees with no voice, no rights, aliens in a foreign land. Uh, let's keep praying for compassionate refugee policies for our nation appropriate sponsors for folks coming into the United States, an effective vetting process. We know this is complex. Maybe we need to consider how, how as families, we can minister to refugees uh, or the international students among us. I mean, here is a huge opportunity in the United States, tremendous opportunity for folks coming in for higher education or, or leaving a place of oppression. It may be the first time that they to be exposed to the gospel, and usually fairly open to it in a land that is not their own. Something else just to bring to our attention uh, this morning with these precepts before us. 
is there, there's a fair amount of conversation. It's not a new conversation. It's been around in the church for a long time. Uh, but surrounding social justice, the importance of uh, social justice for uh, the Christian. Christians should be seeking justice to serve, help those in need. I received a phone message the other day from someone at Pulaski Heights Christian Church. And before I called back, I did just a little research on, on their homepage. And this is what I read. Uh, right on the homepage, kind of a, a mission statement. The church, this church defends no doctrine but Christ, preaches no gospel but love, and has no purpose but to serve. Now that, that sounds very kind and attractive. And the more you look at, at the homepage, you see how attractive they are trying to be. Again, whether, whether there are, are, are God-fearing brothers and sisters who call this gathering a church is not, not the point. Because it sounds like they want to do what the church should be doing. Okay, we see the kingdom of God present in Jesus who meets very practical needs. Feeding, healing, driving out demons. As a body of Christ, we too are to love our neighbor. Very practical ways. James chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So practical helps pursuing justice as the outworking of our faith. But we need to be careful that we don't confuse social justice with the actual gospel. And this happens when God's redeeming work is understood primarily as personal renewal or some sort of social renewal. Restoring broken lives, helping the poor, fighting for justice. Again, we see these things in Jesus who came to heal, to liberate. There is so much relief, so much good in the world because God's redeemed people love their neighbor this way. It's what produces mission statements like what I just read. The danger is that it tends to ignore the reality of sin. And, and the need, not just for personal renewal, but personal reconciliation with God. The gospel entrusted to the church is that forgiveness from the very real guilt and shame of sin is found in Christ. New life found in Jesus. So before we can address any social justice and the sins of the world, we need to take responsibility for our own sins. So the, prefet, the, the precepts here in God's law, they actually support this. Social justice is necessary if the people are to remain God's people and not come under those covenant curses, be destroyed by Him. They uphold justice, justice because of who they are as God's chosen. So the social justice is not the basis of Israel's salvation. It's a necessary fruit of their deliverance. Let me just end this way. Our whole lives are to be stamped with the character of God. And I think if this co collection of precepts helps us, you know, tells us anything, is that we're called to holiness in all things. What we do with our bodies, what we do with money and property, how we respond to the most needy and vulnerable among us. And Peter says in his letter, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
The only way the Israelites could live this way, to move in the direction of holiness, was because of who they were, by God's grace. Because of a new narrative. So these laws are intended to guide, to direct, to to guard the hearts of the people. The laws couldn't save them. Holiness cannot be imposed through legislation. Holiness is pursued through justification. By the saving grace of God. You know the heart of the sojourner, God says. You know what that was like. You know from where you've come. But it's different now. You have a new identity. You're my chosen. This is a new narrative. So you and I can only live this way. We can only pursue holiness because of a new narrative. Our new identity in Christ. We were the widows and orphans. Aliens and strangers. The household of God. But that's different now. We were debtors, impoverished by our sin, but the Lord has rescued us giving us His Son. He's brought us into the family. By God's grace, we are are made sons and daughters, citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Jesus lived in holiness. He lived in perfect obedience to the law's demands. And so we have united to Him by faith. Beloved, this is who we are in Christ. Let's never forget the depths from which Christ has brought us So in holiness, we can extend His kindness. We can extend His compassion to all those around us. Let's pray together. Lord God, You are kind and compassionate. When we consider who You are as our God, it brings us to our knees, Lord, in acknowledging that we need Your help. We are not always kind and compassionate. That These laws are hard for us and these precepts are hard for us to apply from day to day. We thank You that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, has obeyed perfectly on our behalf. And that Your presence with us and in us by Your Spirit now moves us and enables us to obey. Lord, it's what we want to do now, living out of this new story, that we are Your chosen rescued and redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, grow in us a heart of compassion. We pray in His name. Amen.